This is Rosie Tillis and Hannah Langdell, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on the Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in the respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. In this episode, we'll be discussing oncoplastic breast surgery, and this is part of our MicroMasters collection where we interview some of the absolute best in the entire field. We are joined today by one of my best friends from the interview trail, Dr. Sierra Brown, a current PGY3 at Emory, and our in-house expert is Dr. Angela Chang. Dr. Chang is an associate professor at the Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery Program at Emory. She got her medical degree from the University of Florida, go Gators, uh, followed by general surgery residency at UT Houston and plastic surgery fellowship at University of Virginia. She then went on to a fellowship in breast surgery and microsurgery at UT Southwestern, making her an absolute expert in the field and a total boss role model. <laughs> we are so excited to talk to you guys today about oncoplastic breast surgery. I feel like this is a topic that's very nuanced and um, it's often overlooked when it comes to oncologic breast surgery. Um, at least at Duke, we see a lot of total mastectomies with direct implant or expander autologous reconstruction. And sometimes we'll see symmetrizing procedures, but oncoplastics kind of as its own category with breast conservation surgery is an incredibly diverse option. And I, I know you guys are really, really strong at it at Emory and I'm really excited to hear from you. Thanks for having us, Rose. So Yay. it's interesting um, talking to other programs and residents and even co colleagues that um, you're right, this is really variable across the US. There's some programs who don't do this at all. Um, and the residents may not be even, may not have even heard of this. Um, and then there's some programs who do this, I would say like us, um, quite frequently. Um, and so our residents get a lot of exposure to this topic. And I think that's because we have a strong history of breast reconstruction here at Emory. So, um, so we wanted today to talk about basically the non-traditional options. Everybody's really familiar with implants and flaps, but there are these other options that we should um, have in our tool belt, because I think if you're a good surgeon, you have more than two things in your tool belt. So um, oncoplastics, including Goldilocks mastectomy, another term that a lot of surgeons aren't familiar with, are two things that we keep in our back pocket and we're ready to pull out um, and, and use when it's the right patient. So there's already a great, um, great hits podcast on breast reconstruction with um, good in-service review material. So we're gonna skip that. Um, so today we're gonna talk, focus on a couple of things. We're gonna focus on like pre-op um, how do you how do you get your breast surgeons on board with this and get them to send you these patients? And then what do you need to know to plan this? What do you tell the patient about what you're going to do? Because they're not going to see this when they go online and look for breast reconstruction. It's not like a lot of websites talking about it. And then how to um, let your patients know what the options are that are best for them, whether it's oncoplastic or Goldilocks technique. So um, Let's dive first into you know pre-op consideration. So obviously the first thing we gotta do is like who 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 is a good patient to do this on? And ultimately these are obviously lumpectomy patients mostly. And you don't usually get these referred to you if you're they don't think about it. So the first step is having a great relationship with your breast surgeon. And I think most of us who do breast reconstruction um, really do have a good relationship with that surgeon because how well they do affects how well of an outcome that we can get, right? So talking to them and letting you, them know that we can do this is the place you have to start. And because a lot of them have never heard of it themselves. And 
Um, I think low-hanging fruit would be large-breasted women with relatively small tumors that they could probably get away with just a simple lumpectomy. But maybe some of these women already wanted a breast reduction, right? And you don't want to do a breast reduction on somebody who's, who's got a lumpectomy and then been radiated. So these larger women, and we have a lot of them here in Atlanta and a lot of them in the South, um, they're super excited because they're going to get a reduction and a lift at the same time as taking care of their cancer. So you can put a positive spin on what is otherwise a negative experience. They're like, boo-hoo, I have breast cancer. And you're like, but that's okay. I'm going to make your breasts look better than they ever were. <laughs> so they're usually really excited about this. Um, the other you know, types of things to take into consider uh, consideration, obviously, from your breast surgeon is, you know, what is the size of their breasts? Are they a candidate for a lumpectomy? But we can really help expand the criteria for a lumpectomy with oncoplastic. So even if the tumor is relatively large, we can really push the limits because this is a safe operation. So we often have to like work with our breast surgeons as a team and mark these patients together so that we know that uh, we're not gonna interfere with their ability to take out the tumor safely. Um, and most commonly this is done either with a WISE pattern or a vertical mastopexy pattern. Um, and of course the primary goal is an adequate oncologic resection, but us being involved ensures that this patient isn't going to get left with a divot that's going to get worse with radiation and it's going to be left with a very nice looking result because I don't think breast conservation means just saving the breast. It means saving a good looking breast because I see plenty of patients who've had a lumpectomy and radiation and now they want a mastectomy because their result is terrible. So this is important. So Sierra, what kind of patients do you think that we normally um, see for these Typically here in Atlanta, we see patients with relatively large breasts with usually like grade two, grade three ptosis. Um, we preoperative considerations that we want to look at. We want to maximize them preoperatively. So we want to know, do they have diabetes, hypertension? What's their smoking status? Um, it's important to realize that even though uh, sometimes oncoplastic surgery is typically less surgery than free flop breast reconstruction or implant-based reconstruction, it still is more surgery than just doing a traditional lumpectomy. So talking about smoking, so a lot of our patients do smoke, especially right. we work at Grady, which is a county hospital with lower socioeconomic status patients. And that's something seriously to consider. If somebody is actively smoking and unable to quit, you know, the standard four weeks before this operation, we may tell them we're not going to do this and we're going to abort. And we may even cotinine uh, urine test them to confirm mm -hmm. that. Um, and so that is important. Just like if you're doing a breast reduction, you wouldn't want to lift all these skin flaps and reposition the nipple areolar complex on a pedicle on somebody who's a heavy smoker. Um, the rest of the risks are okay, relatively, uh, you know, higher risk for wound complications, just like a breast reduction, but um, I don't think those would be contraindications. Great. I think that's super interesting. Like you talked about expanding the breadth of lumpectomy or expanding kind of like the, the patient population that you can do it in because you can reconstruct kind of larger defects. And mm -hmm. I think that's like such a huge thing that we miss sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. We will push it because some of these women have a relatively small biopsy site, you know, that's positive, but they may have a 10 to 12 centimeter area of calcifications. Right. And a lot of places would say, okay, you don't have any choice. You just have to get a mastectomy. But if it's yeah. a very large breasted woman and you just look at the area where the tumor is, if this is something that you would get out, if you're doing a breast reduction, then easy peasy, go ahead just schedule them for oncoplastic. 
the studies are very clear that with oncoplastic, because you're essentially taking extra margin, that you actually have a higher chance of success with lumpectomy because you're basically clearing additional margin for them. Yeah, that makes sense. And then Dr. Chen, can you talk about also in your pre-op evaluation of what measurements that you find important and how you're counseling patients about their expectations or potential risks? Yeah, so the consultation for most of these patients, for us at least, is very similar to either a mastopexy or a breast reduction, and the measurements are pretty much the same. Same. You want to take nipple to notch. You want nipple to IMF. You want to note the degree of ptosis, any asymmetry, right? So that's important to note because every patient has a, some degree of asymmetry, and we are going to create some asymmetry postoperatively as well because we're going to intentionally usually leave the cancer size slightly larger in anticipation of potential volume loss after radiation. So um, this is a standard, you know, standard types of incisions, you know, we're going to move the nipple, we're not going to take it off type of discussion. Um, you should have uh, preservation of sensation. Um, and here's where the scars are going to be. We're not just, you know, removing cancer, but we're also going to, you know, shift and, and uh, rearrange what's left. So you, it's a good looking breast. And then in terms of your kind of preoperative risk, you talked about smoking being uh, basically a hard stop, but how do you approach these oncoplastic surgeries in patients with increased risk of thrombosis like sickle cell or people on tamoxifen? Um, so I know for tamoxifen, we do traditionally stop that for free flap surgery and that's what the data suggests, but um, I have not found, it's a relatively quick operation. I've not found it necessary mm -hmm. to do any special anticoagulation. So a standard breast reduction is about two and a half hours for me, um, maybe three hours on the larger patients. And so that's not a super high risk for me. And so mm -hmm. most of these patients, I will proceed. Obviously with a sickle cell patient, if they are a little bit anemic, we might want to just, um, you know, transfuse them up to just normal. But I would say in general, it's the same risk as far as thrombosis. I'm not really worried about, there's no pedicle that's named, so to speak, right? We have the superior medial inferior pedicle, but um, if you're doing a breast reduction on these patients, you wouldn't be doing anything different. Mm -hmm. And it's about the same time. So it sounds like it, it makes sense to treat it about the same. Yeah, it's a little bit longer. Obviously, we usually start on the other breast while the breast surgeon is working on the cancer side. Um, so you have to wait a little bit. So usually we'll have one side done while they're you know finishing that up. And then you know, we'll move over to the other side, unlike a standard bilateral where we're working simultaneously. Yeah. <laughs> About how much operative time in addition do you normally tell patients that they'll, they'll have? So obviously this is a longer operation than a lumpectomy. A lumpectomy could be done in maybe 30 minutes to an hour plus or minus the sentinel node. But um, I tell patients this is about the same time as it takes me to do a breast reduction typically. So two, two to three hours um, in addition yeah. to the, the breast surgeon. Okay. So looking at breast conservation therapy contraindications, um, obviously patients who have multicentric disease, who have had prior medical history of radiation to the chest wall or breast, if they have diffused microcalcifications on mammogram, if they have persistent deep margins despite re-excision, um, pregnancy of which the actual uh, contraindication there is due to the need for of radiation, and then other relative contraindications is a relatively large tumor in a small breast um, some literature um, extrapolates this to a tumor size of about five centimeters, although an exact criteria for this hasn't been established, um, or collagen vascular disease, of which there's less toleration um, for radiotherapy. So let's talk about the margins issue, because that's important, Sierra. Mm -hmm. So what do we counsel the patients about if um, after this oncoplastic procedure, they have a positive margin? Um, that sometimes they, we can go back and re-excise it. 
Um, however, we and the breast surgeon will need to be there with it. And if we are unable to get a negative margin, they may need to go and get a mastectomy. Exactly. So sometimes after you've done all this rearranging from your oncoplastic, it's very difficult to tell where your original margins were. Um, so unless it's a deep margin, it can be difficult to figure out. So occasionally some breast surgeons like to leave clips, but we've, by the time we're done, those clips are kind of all over mm -hmm. and it's hard to go back and say, this is where we need to take more. So we do have to counsel these patients that if an additional margin is truly positive, then they may need to go on to mastectomy. Now, if it's just like, if it's a close margin, they'll probably be adequately treated with radiation and nothing mm -hmm. additional is necessary. That makes sense. So you're basically, even in those patients, you're giving them the chance of not having to have the mastectomy where otherwise they may be told this is too much for you. Exactly. So somebody maybe with a relatively large area of calcifications and you just don't know, is that all benign or is that all tumor? And you go and you know do this very large lumpectomy, there's a chance that you still end up having a positive margin. And then you haven't lost anything. You just move on to your mastectomy and mm -hmm. they were already going to get anyways. And do your breast surgeons, like, do they, they, I know they do the full resection. Are they sending margins as you're working on the other side? And so you're kind of getting an idea of how big your defect's going to be and what you're going to need to do. Yeah. So they're taking the lumpectomy and then they're doing, um, some of them like to do six additional margins. Some of them are just happy with it, knowing that we're going to take more anyways. And okay. so it is a little surgeon dependent. Um, and we do weigh all that specimen. So we add that to the weight of, you know, whatever we're going to remove so that we can stay close. And do you send your specimen as well? Exactly. Yes. Okay. We are looking at these patients pre-op and you're looking at, does it matter which quadrant the tumor is in? So it does. Um, it has been shown that you get better aesthetics when the tumors are located more in the superior and lateral aspects of the breast. Um, tumors that are more in the medial location, um, inferior medial specifically in times in the central location can be harder to um, have parenchymal rearrangement that makes them look as good. Um, it's been suggested that tumor resections greater than 10 to 20% um, are associated with a greater um, deformity following um, lumpectomy. Um, and then some of the literature suggests that uh, resections greater than 30 to 40% have a very high rate of looking bad with just having a lumpectomy. Yeah, so tumors right underneath the nipple can be a problem and not great for BC, BCT in general, right? Because you can't usually save the nipple. There's not really a pedicle there. So Sometimes we're still involved just to avoid having a, a divot there, but think about your typical pedicles for breast reduction are superior medial and inferior. So those are, those are what you want to preserve and use. So it's not great when the tumor is there because then you have to kind of do something different. And then you can also sometimes do two pedicles. So sometimes, um, you know, you could do a superior medial and a kind of inferior lateral pedicle. It just really it really makes you kind of creative as far as like, how are you gonna fill this dead space when the tumor's there? So just say it's kind of nice because it allows you to be intraoperatively creative. You can't always plan it before you get in there. It really have to wait for the breast surgeon to do the resection. And then you get to think intraoperatively. No, I don't want to say on the fly, but it's more of a spur of the moment type thinking, looking at a defect and trying to give you the best aesthetic result. And so some of these like, um local flaps that can be used to fill these defects. Do you talk to your, do you like look at the patient and where their tumor is and then talk to them kind of depending on where their tumor is that they may need this to make that decision interoperatively? 
Yeah. So on our larger breasts, because it's more like a rejection, we're just figuring out which pedicle is going to be likely safe to use. We will often draw those out for the breast surgeon and be like, avoid this area. Don't cut into this area. But Mm. on the smaller breasted woman, sometimes there's just not going to be enough. And then we need to look at local tissue, right? So that's when I'm going to start looking to see if there's a lateral thoracic flap, um, muscle sparing latisse or Tdap. Is, is there something I can pedicle off of the intercostals, like the superior epigastrics, um, as a propeller flap? And those are for some sometimes these more challenging um, procedures that are a little bit harder to explain to the patient. Um, but you just tell them, hey, I've got. I usually tell them, I've got to rob Peter to pay Paul. I can't just grow tissue in a lab and shove it in there. Um, and you don't want an implant or a mastectomy, right? So what we can do is try to just move tissue from nearby. Um, and I, th- I think it's kind of important to talk about. So at our institution, again, we commonly are doing a oncoplastic reduction with a contralateral symmetrizing reduction mammoplasty. Um, this is very beneficial to a patient with large pendulous breast. Um, but it's important to remember that in general, just for like in-service sorts, in general, when you have a breast reduction, the risk of having a cancer in that reduction specimen is less than 1%. However, when you are doing a, um, when you're talking about reduction specimen for a patient who already has a known diagnosis of cancer on the contralateral breast, the actual risk of having cancer in the, um, in the opposite breast that you're just reducing is 5%. Um, and I think that's a pretty, uh, commonly tested in-service question. Um, but one of the other benefits of this that you can talk to patients about is that when that, although this is not a risk reduction for the contralateral breast, like a mastectomy is, it still does reduce their risk of breast cancer occurrence 30% in the reduced breast. So there is a, there is sort of a oncologic benefit of doing a breast reduction to the other side. Yeah. We like doing this both at the same time. You don't need to leave them asymmetric, let them get radiated and then see what that breast looks like, and then try to match it. Go ahead and reduce both sides or lift both sides. And then just warn them, there's a small subset that may need to come back for a further correction because they may have a extreme response to radiation with fibrosis. There's no set number. We generally kind of leave that bigger breast about 10 to 15% larger, um, just to in anticipation of that effect. Yeah, I think that's good to hear. At Duke, we oftentimes do come back and they're saying, oh, we don't want to extend the length of the surgery. We're not sure exactly how it's going to respond to radiation. Um, so good to hear a different way of doing things. And you don't necessarily have to bring the patient back for a second time. Yeah, especially nowadays, you know, we have limited OR time and the patients really dislike being asymmetric, uh, especially with these larger breasted women. Like if they have a G cup on one side and a C cup on the other and they're walking around like that, their back really hurts. <laughs> We do live in the biscuit belt. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So some of the other benefits um, besides the oncologic specifics that we already discussed is that it really does have a pretty good aesthetic result. And there are two made analyses that have been published within the last uh, five or 10 years that show that actually patients have an 85 to 90% um, satisfaction in their cosmetic result following oncoplastic procedures. Um, It is important to note that in the literature, there is a major limitation on objective evaluation of these results. Um, It's also important, like we discussed briefly, is that you are taking a larger tumor resection, which does tend to decrease the positive margin rate compared to just a traditional uh, breast conservation therapy. Um, Further, it's important to know that 
patients who undergo oncoplastic reconstruction, um, as opposed to flap reconstruction or implant-based reconstruction, actually undergo less total number of procedures. Um, a actual uh, series published by one of my attendings, my program director, Dr. Loskin, showed that patients who had oncoplastic surgery underwent an average of 2.4 procedures till they reached definitive stable breast reconstruction, whereas those in the other subset underwent nearly uh, over five surgeries. Um, there also, it is important to note that there is a learning curve with this technique, and actually some of the literature has shown that um, as the more surgeries that you do, the less... Uh, symmetrizing procedures or um, revisions that your patient is going to need. So a little bit about some things I've learned as far as learning curve. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I traditionally will mark my wise pattern slightly lower than the standard breast reduction pattern because I can always take more out, but mm -hmm. I want to keep as much skin and tissue and Often, if I can avoid it, I want my breast surgeon not to cut on my wise pattern. I will ask them to cut within the area of the wise pattern. And again, like I said, I mark the pedicle that I'm thinking I'm going to use. And I'm like, don't touch this, right? Uh, with a different colored marker too. So red is the no-go zone. They know that. <laughs> um, so if they really want, they'll often use like the lateral limb of the wise pattern to reach the tumor. Sometimes um, they end up saying, oh, well, I need to cut this higher because this tumor is closer to the skin. And so it's important for you to not totally commit to that wise pattern, right? If so they're, if they're using that lateral incision and then taking a little bit of lateral skin, then save the inferior skin, right? So basically you have a huge inferior pedicle. We normally would deepithelize and toss away this, but you can save that skin. And that can be now skin that you can use to close. Or let's say they get a little close at where your T-junction is. Same thing. You can just leave skin on the portion we normally deepithelize and you have viable skin. So those are, don't throw anything away until they're done. Don't make any cuts. Don't throw anything away till they're done. They often will, um, you know, take more than you thought, right? Um, or maybe they've undercut the nipple a little bit more than you mm. thought they were going to do. Mm -hmm. And that we see that a lot. Sierra's nodding her head. Um, and so we will use spy um, and take a look and make sure that that nipple is alive. Um, and if not, then you sometimes, if you're, tumors close, you might have to warn them, you might have to do a free nipple graft. So those are things to take into consideration. I, like, again, when you're starting this, the right patient to start is like a relatively large breasted patient with a small tumor. You, you, you know, your breast surgeon's going to be impressed. The patient's going to be super happy. And then you can start pushing into these larger tumors and smaller breasts and really pushing that ratio as far as what you can still do. So I tell the patients like, sometimes, you know, based on fruits or whatever, they have no idea like how big the tumor is. I'm like, it's, mm -hmm. they're taking out a tangerine, they're taking out a baseball, they're taking out a walnut. And then like you have this much breast tissue left, or you don't have enough breast tissue left just to give them an idea. Cause when you say I'm going to do an oncoplastic procedure on you, they have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, that's really true. And I think that's one of the reasons that I was really excited to do this is because we, this gives us a way to become more knowledgeable so that we can talk to patients about it so that we don't sound like complete morons and we're like, I promise this is possible. <laughs> Some of these are the happiest patients I've had because they're cancer free and their breasts look better than they were ever. Their back feels better. Yeah, they got they their reduction. You. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. love you. <laughs> You're welcome. Those are all great tips. Um, yeah. 
And definitely I can see how it's important to have a good relationship with your breast surgeon. So if you don't think about it, they're not going to send this to you. So Mm -hmm. a lot of times um, when the breast fellows start beginning the year, we whisper in their ears and they haven't Mm -hmm. heard of this. And then they figure it out and they're like, oh, this is cool. And now when they go into practice, hopefully they'll reach out to their local plastic surgeon and ask for this for their patients. Cause I think it's a win-win for everybody. Definitely. Great. And you know, one of the things that I think came out of Emory that can really be spread around, I think that's really cool is the Goldilocks procedure. So this is amazing. Um, and I can't wait to hear you guys talk about it because this is something that we've never seen, um, at Duke, at least Hannah and I have never seen. And I, I think we see things that we, we kind of have like ideas because some things we see are kind of similar, but this is really interesting. And I think it has like a lot of possibilities. Yeah. So the Goldilocks procedure was actually first, um, just first published in 2012 by, like you said, a former Emory grad, uh, Dr. Grace Ma, and, um, she is now a private plastic, uh, plastic surgeon here in Atlanta, but what it does, it's a form of breast reconstruction that utilizes the patient's, the patient's native tissue, typically, um, with a wise pattern incision. Um, and the remaining, and it takes their remaining mastectomy skin flaps, which are then de-epithelialized and rotated to create a very small central breast mound, typically used in patients after they've had a skin sparing mastectomy. Um, and the ideal patient is, or someone you want to think of when you're offering this procedure is someone who has comorbidities in which traditional reconstructive techniques, they would be what would be high risk for this patient or someone who has breastosis or older patients who say, I just don't want to go through the whole reconstructive algorithm. This is a great procedure to offer them. And it's um, named Goldilocks based on the fairy tale because it's an intermediate form of breast reconstruction um, to seek an outcome that is just right and also very safe for the patient. Um, I strongly urge you all to read this article written by Dr. Grace Ma that was published um, in the International Journal of Surgery in 2012 um, because it is a relatively new technique for breast reconstruction. Um, Dr. Chang, you want to talk a little bit more about techniques for this and pearls that you have? Sure. Um, so if you can't find that original publication, she's got great photos. Another recent, um, I think was in PRS by Nahabadia and showed a great case of a, a, a young girl with a gigantic fibroadenoma, um, which you would think that, that yeah, she's got nothing <laughs> left, but he's, he, and we, we had something similar recently. Um, and he, and he created a breast out of what was left. So this is something that's actually remarkably easy that every plastic surgeon from PGY, probably two and up who can draw a wise pattern and can de-epithelize can do. Lots of de-epping. <laughs> I think I can maybe do that. Oh, we can de-ep. I'm a de-ep expert. <laughs> and you can sleep well and you don't have to worry about a flap dying and you don't have to worry about implant getting infected. Right. So wow. This is a great option when you're looking at this patient and you, every, every fiber in your being says, don't put an implant in her and you can't do a flat because she's BMI like 52 or something, right? But they're, they're not gonna be leaving your office until you offer them something, right? They want something. Um, and so this is where, when I would use this. And we just did this actually um, two days ago on a patient, on, no, yesterday, <laughs> let's try. Um, she was smoking high BMI, and insisted on some sort of breast reconstruction, wasn't gonna leave the OR without anything. Um, and she was a G cut breast. So same thing, mark your wise pattern, but you don't cut along your wise pattern. You cut just like a traditional skin sparing mastectomy. So you, they make their little traditional either semi-oblique um, or transverse incision to remove the nipple and you have them work through that incision. 
Then when they're done, we again did spy just to make sure the flaps are okay, trimmed away anything that looked terrible. And then you de-epithelize everything. So that traditional area that you'd be throwing away for your wise pattern is now volume that you're gonna use. Um, and so there's no pedicle, so, so to speak, but it is basically a large inferior pedicle of skin that you can back cut and then put some stitches in to kind of shape. You're really just taking what's left of the mastectomy skin and making a small breast mound and then, and you put a drain in um, and then you close everything up and they can go home the same day. Um, so it's a good option when you're like in a rock and a hard place and you just don't know what to do. Um, and then what happens is they heal, they stop smoking and you can either go back and add an implant or do a flap after they've lost weight. So it's a nice in-between procedure. Um, because if they've healed, then the skin is still there. It's soft, it's supple, and it's easy enough, just like a breast dog to go back in and do a, subcut a subcutaneous implant and give them, you know, the volume that they want. But a lot of the, our older patients are happy with this and, yeah. um, they don't care. They you know, the breasts aren't important to them, but they also don't want to be sunken in and concave. And this is a nice option. So it's like a, kind of an advantage over a tissue expander and like a risky patient and they may not need the exchange. Exactly. Just much safer yes. than a tissue expander. So our G right. patient that we did yesterday, when we were done, she had this like small B cup. Do they ha ever have like contour deformities or do you have tips to avoid contour deformities since you're kind of just cramming that skin pedicle up there? Yeah, so they can obviously a lot of times. Sometimes mm -hmm. they'll get a little fat necrosis. Sometimes mm -hmm. these don't look great. So sometimes it's because it really again depends on your breast surgeon and what they leave you. If they leave you good, mm -hmm. thick, healthy flaps, you're gonna have great stuff to work with. If they leave you terrible flaps, you're gonna get fat necrosis. You're gonna get um, contours and dimples. But again, you can fat graft these, or you can mm -hmm. add an implant and you can improve that. But you don't have to deal with losing an expander. We've all been through those patients. They lose mm -hmm. the expander and then they're like, I don't ever want to do this again. I'm done. Just take it out. Um, and so this is a way to, you know, have some success and some control over your soft tissue. And you're saying that some patients are just happy with having this small breast mound. About what percentage would you say end up going back and wanting an implant? And you always place these uh, subcutaneously? So for, for better or worse, this is not something that anyone has high volume in, <laughs> even though we're a relatively high volume institution. Um, we're working on this paper and looking back at how many each of us has done, because while we, we do do this more frequently than I think most of our colleagues, you know, I don't do probably more than five or 10 of these a year. Um, and so even collectively amongst our entire division, we probably don't do that many a year. So it's hard to say for sure, but I, my gut tells me about 25% of these women want as after they're done, they're like, okay, now I want something more, uh, whether that's fat or an implant is a little bit, you know, harder to speak. And it's, mm -hmm. I think that has to do with how big they are and then how they realize they fit in clothes or how they look to their partner, um, or just their own mental, like you know, body acceptance of not having breasts. Well, mm -hmm. that's wonderful. I mean, it's pretty impressive. Like I said, the yeah. older women tend to be fine with it. And some of the younger women, they really are probably that, happy to just yeah. have something and, you know, yeah. have an option. I feel like as a resident, when you do it for the first time, you're kind of shocked that that is all the reconstruction that you're doing. Yeah. Because you're like, <laughs> wow, I just worked really hard to DF this whole thing. <laughs> I'm like exhausted. And then you tack it together and you're like, hmm. Yeah. Is that a mound? 
Like the first one I did, I was like, I can't believe this is what we just did. But in certain patients love it. And you always can go back, give them an implant, but I have seen them come back later and just fat graft them. And they've been very happy as well. Um, and I guess that's really what it's all about. But <laughs> the first one I did, I was like, Ooh, yeah, it's a lot of like you, yeah. might, you might need to inject your carpal tunnel ahead of time. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of work for a little Lots of 10 blades. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, what a great option. Like if you don't have to have that risk of the expander, I mean, we've all seen those expanders coming out and getting infected in these, these poor patient candidates. Right. And like, this is great for them. Yeah, exactly. And then, I mean, just like some of the literature has shown that you can use this in a very high risk patient with like BMIs over thirties with like complication rates that are like less than 10%. So it's just a very nice option to have in your repertoire. Yeah. Not to get the the nitty gritty too much, but um, can you talk a little bit about like what kind of suture you're using and are you tacking this just down to like the chest wall? Are you trying to get rib at all when you're doing this? Um, most of the times we're sewing the, the tissue to itself, either, and my, this is your preference, like to a vicral or to a PDS suture that's kind of to create this kind of pillar. I think mm-hmm. if you've ever done like a Rubens technique for a mastopexy after a massive weight loss, it's kind of a similar concept, right? He takes that lateral skin um, and rotates it around and then sews it to itself to create this little like pillar of tissue. Um, Sometimes you, you can tack it like just to the what's left of the pack if you if it's super floppy, but we don't usually find that necessary. It's usually mm-hmm. not just that tack it kind of to itself, and it you just tack yeah. it to yourself. Yeah. Okay. Small mound. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're a little bitter about this, Sierra. <laughs> like, do you it, is, it can be underwhelming the first time you do yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, yeah really, we need to find someone to do it here so we can. Yeah. Yeah. I, I gave a talk at ASPS this last fall and I, I was very clear. I was like, here's a good result. And then here's a bad result. And here's like an in-between result and you'll get all over the place. It really depends on your breast surgeon. And the thickness of what they're leaving you. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And if they're leaving you really thin flaps, do you ever just say it's maybe not worth it or. You can DF like... anything. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Fair enough. We have some very thin uh, skin flaps. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yes. My partner says there are three things that separate plastic surgeons from other surgeons. And one is the ability, and this this is the perfect example. One, the ability to de-up. Two, the ability to to harness the powers of a wise pattern. And three is to brand. So all of those those three. (laughs) Wow. Wow. If that isn't the truth. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, on that note, um, let's see if we have any more questions for you guys. Hannah, do you have any more questions or any other tidbits you want to share? This has yeah, been really awesome. Pretty words that, you know, either one of y'all have, um, we've really enjoyed having you in the podcast. Um, yeah. Any final thoughts for our listeners? <laughs> so typically when you're choosing a pedicle to do an oncoplastic procedure, um, now there are, there are more kind of just local soft tissue 
rearrangements where you're just undermining a little and closing it. I'm not talking about that type of onchoplastic procedure because those are really more adjacent tissue transfers and that's how those should be coded. What we're talking about is either a mastopexy type or a breast reduction type. And these procedures are coded that way now. They used to be coded with a breast reduction other code, but now they ask you to code based on what it's closest to, whether you did what's closest to a mastopexy, like you didn't take out a lot and then you know you maybe you took out an inferior pedicle and then you closed medial and lateral pillars to create a mastopexy type thing or whether you did a breast reduction type closure. So your pedicle is gonna depend on where your tumor is obviously, because you can't have a pedicle where the tumor is. So luckily a lot of our um, patients have tumors that are not in the superior medial area or inferior area. So we can use the same pedicles you would choose for a breast reduction that you're most comfortable with. And that's really a little bit dealer's choice. right? Some of us prefer a superior medial pedicle and some of us prefer an inferior pedicle and there are lots of arguments as to which one is better. Of course, the kind of the safest and most common one that most residents and most practicing surgeons are familiar with is inferior. And that's gonna get you th through 99% of the tumors as long as it's not you know, at the six o'clock position on the breast. Um, you can also do what's called an extended superior medial pedicle. Dr. Um, Bert Loskin, my partner, has described that. So if you have an outer upper outer quadrant tumor and just doing a regular superior medial pedicle isn't gonna fill the defect enough, you can basically extend that pedicle, make it a little bit longer so that you have more bulk to rotate up and around to fill the defect. Or you can do a secondary pedicle. So you can do a superior medial and a lateral pedicle that's inferiorly based that that can be transposed cephalad while the other one is uh, rotated into position. So you can really be a little bit creative. We traditionally think of pedicles where like the nipple is attached, but you just want to save volume. So again, if you have a medial tumor, you can do a very wide inferior pedicle, right? It doesn't have to be eight centimeters. You can include and deepithelialize all of that medial area so that when you shift it up, it's basically a wide inferior pedicle that may be 10 or 20 centimeters to fill that space. So you just don't want to throw it away like you normally would, but now it just becomes part of your pedicle. So you can take you know, a wider version or secondary pedicle if you need volume medially or laterally. And if you really need upper outer quadrant, an extended superior medial is a nice option. So those are you know, it's just the same thing you would do for a breast reduction traditionally, except that you may not be throwing away what you traditionally throw away as part of the specimen. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, and it uh, does. It makes a lot of sense. Normal use inferior, but some room to be creative if you need to be. So, and well, don't throw anything out is what I'm getting. <laughs> yeah. I would say we actually do about half and half. Yes. Like, so we do 50% superior medial. My program director like loves the superior medial. Um, and then we do probably do 50% inferior. Um, and that's like kind of like true with both oncoplastic reductions and also with regular breast reductions as well. Um, what do you guys do for breast reductions? Like what, what's your most common pedicle? Mostly Almost our inferior. inferior. Yeah. yeah. Right. We had, um, you know, we have a, a couple people who will do like super remedials um, and kind of whatever, if, if we want to do something new or we want to try something else and they're down to do it. But our, our good standard is the uh, inferior pedicle. And there's nothing wrong with that. It'll get you past the boards and it's going to get you out of dodge most, <laughs> most of these cases. So it's a good place to start. If you've never done an oncoplastic, as long as the tumor is not at that six o'clock position, 
then you could pretty much lift this like a standard um standard breast reduction now if your skin flaps are a little thin because they got close to the tumor and got you know superficial then you again you can just leave a little volume and leave a little bit bigger uh pedicle to fill that space mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense i'm gonna start doing other pedicles <laughs> So we have to convince our attendings now to do Goldilocks and superior medial pedicles now. Yes. We get a lot of freedom at the VA. So yeah. Nice. Sure. yeah so when you find a terrible candidate for breast reconstruction, <laughs> yeah. you know, Honestly, I think you might be able to find some of those yeah. in the VA. So yeah. But it, it exactly. really is. And if you have any mid-levels that you work with, sometimes those are the people to get in, you know, give, give them chirp in their ear because one of my very senior breast surgeons, she was very hard to convince to do anything. She refused to even learn how to do nipple sparing mastectomies. Um, saw this cute little 15 year old girl with a giant juvenile fibrinoma, and she was gonna just do a huge lumpectomy and that was it. Um, and the, the breast PA was actually like, hey, why don't you send the plastics? Maybe they can help her, right? Because here she is with this humongous, nearly volleyball size breast and, and her little cute B size breast on the other side. Um, and she, it just never even occurred to her to send her to plastics. And we did a Goldilocks very similar to how Nahabidian described it and got her a cute looking breast to match the other side. And she didn't need, you know, radiation because it was a benign disease process, but these are, they just, it doesn't occur to the breast surgeon sometimes. So um, talking to their nurses or just showing them some good results and they're, they're going to think of you next time and say, Hey, maybe you should refer it to the plastic surgeon. Yeah, yeah. that's really great. Talk to everyone, get everyone on board. Yeah. Our breast PAs are great. Of course. And then just on a side note, I don't know if you guys noticed, but um, the American College of Surgeons, which is obviously the general surgery meeting, they are actually offering a course on oncoplastic surgery this year. Really? And, it is, oh. and, and it's not the first time they've done it. And then also the Texas meeting is offering an aquaplastic course. Interesting. So I don't know if it's worth mentioning that this is something the breast surgeons are trying to do themselves. And they are trying to go to these weekend courses to learn these things. And in one weekend, in one weekend, <laughs> um, so that they can do this themselves because they recognize that this is, this is something good for patients that patients are starting to ask for and um that they can make money doing and you have to protect your territory as a plastic surgeon and prove that you can make this easier for them and do a better job than they do because you know other techniques because they may only learn let's say in fear pedicle and you know how to do other techniques so um you know if your breast surgeon says oh that's okay i can do that without you um, you know, you argue, wait, wait, I can work on the other breast, save you time. We can do more mm -hmm. cases together. And, um, you know, I, I don't doubt you could do this, but, um, I think we can do this better together. Yeah. And also mm -hmm. in other countries in Europe, sometimes breast surgeons are actually doing the oncoplastic surgery and I'm sure their training regimen is different than here it is in the U S however, in Europe, a lot of breast surgeons do oncoplastic surgery, which is just kind of interesting. Yeah, I did not realize yeah, that. I see it. Like I, I get where they would think that that would be beneficial as part of their training, but if they're, if you're using this as a technique so that you can have better results aesthetically for your patient, when I feel like you'd want to send them to the person who's specifically trained in this and, and in like aesthetics and in balancing and all these techniques. I don't know. It's a standard excuse of like, it's too hard to find a plastic surgeon to be available. We don't have one in town, blah, blah, uh -huh. blah. Mm -hmm. So I just want to be able to do it myself. Right. Yeah. So, 
You have to be yeah. available. Which is possibly how our draw also on working on the contralateral side. That's it's true. Yeah. The upper breast, more aesthetic. That's um, a huge advantage. With the uh, its lateral side. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Y'all built a really good framework and relationship. So yeah. Kudos Been to you. Impressed. So. For real. Yeah. You can do it too. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to start. It'll start with Hannah and I. Yeah. <laughs> all that DFing. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. I'm like feeling the hand cramps now. Yeah. <laughs> As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.